Welcome to episode 71 of Honestly Unbalanced. Why am I speaking quietly? I'm speaking quietly because Holly and I have just had a baby four weeks ago. A little sunny hustler and he's sleeping upstairs as I speak. But let me tell you about our guest. Our guest this week is awesome and actually parenting is the topic we touch on or at least conscious parenting. We had Tony Riddle or the natural lifestylist as you might know him as the guest this week. Uh, Tony is a natural lifestyle coach the author of the best-selling book Be More Human How to Transform Your Lifestyle for Optimum Happiness, Health and Vitality and is also a record-breaking barefoot endurance athlete He's regarded as a trailblazer within the field of natural movement and lifestyle uh, and the creator of the natural lifestyle philosophy which encourages modern urbanites to reconnect with certain innate wild behaviours in order to increase physical, emotional, social and spiritual wealth. Uh, Tony, actually, coming up soon, he's running the South West Coast Path uh, from the 15th of this month, September, in a record attempt, and he'll be trying to run 100 kilometers, I say trying, I'm sure he will, running 100 kilometers per day to beat the current record of 10 days, 8 hours and 24 minutes. Uh, he's raising money for three charities, and in our on our website, thehustlers.com, you can find a link to the GoFundMe page. Uh, and if you're interested in spending some time with Tony in person, his 100 Human Experience is coming up the 28th to 30th of October, which is a two-night immersive rewilding experience with a host of expert coaches, and it includes ice baths, fire and cacao ceremonies, voice work, natural movement and play, and you get tickets via his website. If you want to know what we're chatting about, I'll tell you. We're chatting about what it means to rewild conscious parenting, exploring organic movement, play as a flow state, the cycles of sleep, breathing to achieve altered states, and how he chose an organic life after bankruptcy and drugs. What an episode this is. Enjoy. Now, before you get listening to the rest of the episode, I want to introduce you to my Level Up program for yoga teachers. It's a six-month program full of mentoring, coaching and education. And the idea behind this is I spend a lot of time with you, both in a group setting and individually, trying to help you find your unique path as a teacher, establish your authentic values, find some clarity, establish the kind of life you want to live, work out how to broaden your income streams, refine your skill as a teacher. And I'm going to give you plenty of honest feedback and support through this program. So if, if you're remotely interested in this, it begins the 3rd of November. Applications are open now. And if you apply and put a deposit down soon, there is a, a decent discount. You can find all details on this program, including testimonials, at adamhustler.com. That's a level up six months program. And if you are a yogi and you want a discount on a mat, you can get 10% off life forms using code HUSTLER. And actually, Lifeform have just had a massive achievement. They've gone B Corp. So they're B Corp certified, which means, in short, they're doing good stuff for the world. And it's very, very hard to get that certification. So, well done, Lifeform. Anyway, you guys listen to the episode now. Right. Enjoy. Honestly, right, Tony, I was actually listening to you on a podcast the other day. And we are, you can't tell this, but Holly's pregnant. Holly's very pregnant. <laughs> Holly's due. Like Huge. next next month. Yes. Is this your is this your first? Yes. It is. 
I know so we're having a, having you a little must be boy. Like beaming the two of you. Yes, yeah. slash yeah, scared. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, I was listening, and I heard something about nappies, and the idea that you're—I think you may be your most recent child. You didn't really need to use nappies, and the child gave you a signal oh when it needed God. a shit, and that really <laughs> intrigued me. And I just kind of was imagining this signal, and there's a whole scenario going on in my head. <laughs> I would love to learn more about how not to use nappies. <laughs> Okay, good start, man. <laughs> love that. Love that. Straight into the poop conversation. Um, it's not just shitting; it's peeing as well. So the signals get much stronger. Is it a different signal um, so, for each? Yeah. So think think of it like this: that we have we um, we have pets like puppies and cats, right? And you're potty train a cat or a dog in such a short window of time, and we give them such trust in a short window of time. And yet we're meant to be this intellectual species, but what we tend to do is keep children in nappies until what some up until the age of four, right? Mm. And then what we then do is we tell them at the age of four that everything we've been telling you to do to poop in your nappy and pee in your nappy for this length of time is wrong. What you need to do is go and do it here. And all this time they've had all these innate abilities within them to learn much, 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 much earlier and also build this amazing trust within you and the conversation with the child. So um, it starts a little like this. It's about sensitivities. So it's Katerina, really, that yeah. picks up on the signal <laughs> rather than me. So I'm here, you know, as the fraud talking about this, but it, it's really um, Katerina. So it, she would carry, it started with Tallulah, uh, third child. We're now number four with Bowman. Wow. Um, and well, with Lola and Millie, I guess earlier, we'd managed to potty train them at a very early age. I think by a year already, Lola was done. And the same for Millie, but it's easier for Millie because she could just follow what Lola was doing. And they were two years apart. When it came to Tallulah, we were just so much more into our lifestyle and so much more, I guess, living this authenticity that everyone's in search of, or we, we were mm. particularly in search of when it came to parenting at least. Um, and we'd read up on this continuum concept mm. and the continuum concept is this a woman that lives with tribes she's with them for like five years um, comes back and then has this huge epiphany when back of oh, hold on a minute the children weren't crying in these particular tribes what was what was happening and and the kids weren't put down and they were always being held and always being carried and um, they could always be fed. They always had love when they needed it, cuddles when they needed it, and they didn't have nappies. But hold on a minute, why weren't why weren't why wasn't every parent covered in poop and everything else, right? So what we discovered then through that path was this huge trust that we could then have within that, and let's explore it. And Katerina would keep Tallulah in a sling or would carry most of the time. To start with, starting in um, like first time nappies like the really early stages for the first three months really and then within that suddenly picking up on the sensitivity of the signal that Tallulah would make if she needed to poop or needed to pee right within wearing a nappy because she's carried the whole time and held all the time and then Katerina would then take Tallulah out when she picked up on the signal nappy would come off and it would be straight to the toilet and that's how it started just that sensitivity. 
And is it 100% accurate? Not all the time. No, because you're learning just as much as they're learning mm. because we've had to rewild that behavior. We've, we've become disconnected from it. Mm. And we also didn't trust it, you know, if you imagine that at the very beginning. So then as, as this relationship starts to open up, everyone in the family then starts to pick up on what the signal is, not just Katerina's sensitivity with Tallulah or Tallulah with Katerina. And then it just started to open up and open up until eventually Tallulah would then, at the age of one, she was already standing and walking. She was already signaling then that she needed to go to the toilet. You know, beyond just the, maybe just a, a movement of her spine or a sound, which it starts off at a very early start at the, at the very beginning. And then that starts to get stronger and stronger and opens out. So, um, and how did you, do, again, how did you one... do with it at night time? Well, in the, in the, we co-sleep as well. So we would mm. co-sleep and in the very beginning, she'd be in nappies, but within a very short window of time, again, that, that, that just starts to move out. I think it's, um, even with Bo, we were told with boys, it's meant to be a slower process, more difficult, but Bo at the age of one was already without nappies in bed. Mm. Amazing. My gosh. Yeah. And already could signal and all we could just again and then we were more confident i guess yeah. with that you know and also it's being given lots of info oh yeah boys are a lot slower when it comes to learning this or doing this we haven't found that at all mm. not, not not one bit wow you know? just as quick to absorb just as quick to open up just as quick to unravel really mm. and I, I think again it's just the trust it's the sensitivities and i talk about rewilding and rewilding with clients mm. and looking at our habitats that we live in but really it's kids don't need rewilding yeah they already are wild it's, i suppose yeah sort of they're yeah. lady wild connected empowered beings yeah and it's often our tribes of influence that determine whether they remain so or not so would, would you say because I, I love the word rewilding but i'd love you to explain in your own words what it means and from what you said it's almost like a coming back to being a child in a way so could you describe what rewilding is uh, well it's the context around the environment isn't there where we rewild habitat mm -hmm. and we could look at models like the trophic cascade where they reintroduce wolves to yellowstone park and through that process, just introducing an apex predator to an environment, um, the habitat started to completely shift because then you weren't having particular breeds um, growing in numbers, destroying the biodiversity. So um, uh, more close to home, I went to visit the Nepa State. Have you been to see um, the no. yellow trees place, the Nep? Um, so they had a farm and they rewilded the farm. It started off with a meadow and they started to see that the insect population, the pollinators were growing and it changed the landscape completely. And then it's like, why don't we go a step further? And they started to introduce more ancient breeds like roaming animals, ruminants. And then through those ruminating animals, they could see, ah, oh, okay, the diversity was changing again. And if they had too many ruminating animals, then they chew through everything and there wouldn't be any biodiversity. And if they had too little, the canopy would grow back too fast and they would have very little biodiversity. So it's this understanding our role, the human role mm. within that relationship. Um, and then we can look further out and we look to indigenous tribes of say four to 5% of the world's population are indigenous right now. Mm. Yet they look after and support 80% of our world's biodiversity. Oh, wow. So that's the human playing a role within that. Whereas the nepostate on a smaller scale, we understand the sensitivities that 
if too many ruminating animals, ah, lack of biodiversity, too much canopy, lack of biodiversity. So that's what we can look at on a, on a environmental um, level. And then we could bring like tree planting into that. But then we have to be much more sensitive with tree planting because you could um, reforest a whole area. But what if the trees aren't indigenous to that area? What would that relationship be? What would that do for biodiversity, let's say? Um, and there's the human within that relationship mm. and our role. And a lot of my work started through movement and just seeing that oh, there was natural or wild ways of moving um, just as much or organic, let's call it. We talk about organic food, don't we? Mm -hmm. but what's our organic movement? What does that look like? Because it certainly doesn't involve a cross trainer or <laughs> burpees and squat for us. We have a much more sophisticated way of moving. So then starting to look, well, where do we look for that? Well, we can look to, again, indigenous cultures and how they're moving. And this isn't cultural appropriation. It's cultural appreciation mm. in that sense. So what, well, what is our template? What does it look like? And we can look to the four to five percent of the world's population, really, to look not just at how they look after biodiversity, but how do they look after their own health and well-being? And, and that's where I come from at that level is to look at, well, if that's movement and how does movement look, well, what does digestion look like and what does sleep look like in nature? And, and then starting to look at our everyday environment, not demonizing the everyday environment, but to dismantle and deconstruct um, the ways of living that perhaps aren't serving us in this environment mm -hmm. and then reconnecting to ways of living that are more in sync with our human biology and where do we look? We can look to the natural world that, and the natural beings of the world to then enable us to thrive in our everyday environments. Before, before we move to the human body a little bit more, which we, of course, inevitably will, what you kind of alluded to there was almost like kind of a social action element of things in that we are, as part of your movement, are you advocating that people participate in, in kind of welding in the environment as well and advocate for more appropriate tree planting and the like? Is that part of, of what you're trying to cultivate? Yeah, because it's it's beyond. It's basically we we have this notion that we're separate from nature, mm. but it's interconnected, isn't it? Mm. Like humans and nature are one. We are nature, right? And I think that's part of my work is to reintroduce people to um, get outside to the first stage, right? Try and spend more time in outdoor environments, but also what's outdoors? Can we bring more of that in? And then we can go beyond that and look to, well, how do we really um, open that conversation up? Well, the more natural the experience, the more natural my experience, mm. you know, the more nature I um, immerse myself in, the more natural I'll become. And there's some fantastic studies around that, that just 20 minutes in a natural habitat will lower your heart rate and blood pressure. Mm. One simple act, 20 minutes, right? Then you can go a little a step further. There's a study in the book that I've put in. Um, it's uh, in Finland, and the and they, it's a biodiversity study really. And they manipulate a forest floor. They create a forest floor inside a nursery or kindergartens, and they bring in um, plant pots and things for kids to get their hands in but this forest floor and they have 90 minutes a day just for 28 days in that environment and encourage the kids to play in it. Right. And this isn't like out in the forest. This is on a playground floor where they've bought a florist, a florist, a forest. <laughs> in, right? And they're playing around and they notice that within that short window of time, 28 days, just 90 minutes a day, 
and that's not seven days, that's a five-day week, that there's a huge shift in their T-cells, natural immunity then, so immune system, um, but also their skin and gut microbiome, which, of course, will enable their immune system, right? But that's just 28 days. So what what should we advocate then? Should we say, oh, yeah, more time in urban settings with concrete, or, or is it that we should be rewilding areas? Because if it, say, if it shows that we can lower heart rate, blood pressure, improve our immunity and microbiome, why wouldn't we want to rewild and look at the biodiversity of the planet? And also that's our role is within that. Because I look at biodiversity as like interdependence, mm-hmm. like those ruminating animals at the NEPA state, right? Um, if, if there's too many, it goes out of balance. Too little, it's out of balance. Or the pollinators, each one plays its own role, as does the human, right? Because we're a human animal, right, within that environment. We are independent of that whole thing, but interdependent of it. And interdependence is the true form of what biodiversity is in a way, right? That's the real interdependent table that we should be having a place at, along with everything else, right, at that table. And that's part of my work is to help amplify the voices of the 4 to 5% mm. of the indigenous population, because they clearly have a handle on what it is to look after the 80% biodiversity of our planet, mm. you know? Wow. You know, and they clearly have an understanding of what it is that we need as, a, as, a, as, as our independent role at that table, but also what we need to thrive as well, you know? If we just look at some of the studies since what, you know, we're, 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 we're on this path of, well-being if you look at well-being now if you search well-being hashtag well-being mm. how many people are searching for well-being yeah, right it's now huge. it's millions of mm. people yeah yet obesity is through the roof depression is at, yeah. through the roof mental health issues are through the roof you know so for us like suicide and um, under the age of 50 it's the number one killer for men right now in the uk right Gosh. if if there's there's something that's out of balance. Well, it's a, it's right a complete now, right? lack of connection, isn't it? Yeah. Lack of connection with each other, with the environment, with the world. That that, that study you mentioned before in was it Sweden, Finland, so, Finland, in Finland, yeah. But that that's also testament to the idea that we should let children just have some free play and free time and free movement and free exploration, not just all the benefits from getting into the dirt, but just doing their own thing in a space and adults. And, but I think there was, there was a study on something similar, definitely not in the environment, natural environment. It was in a, in basically a junkyard. And I, th- yeah. I think the study was in the 60s, perhaps. It was a while ago. And they let these kids just have their break time in a junkyard. Okay, you couldn't do that now. And it was that bullying went down. Uh, like diagnoses of ADHD went down significantly in a relatively short space of time just by allowing children to have space to do their thing and explore. It go back. Yeah, and okay. I, go, carry on. Well, that's a, that's that's incredible, isn't it? Because then that's just that's the playful act. You know, mm. if we were saying about at the beginning, what is rewilding, and it almost feels like going back to if kids are innately wild, connected, empowered beings, yeah. where do we need to get back to? It's that childlike state. I don't mean that we all become children. It's the playful state mm. of mind that children have, and there's again. Some, where can we look? We can look to nature to understand what play looks like rather than just the junkyard because that's symptom relief of something where they're, having, they're being immersed in play. Mm. 
that removes the symptoms of say ADHD. Yeah, but what, what does it actually look like in nature? You know, if we remove all the cause and just look to what is the natural example of it, right? Um, so that they, these aren't children operating with symptom relief and, and yeah. Um, and there's t 10 leading at through Peter, um, it's 10 leading anthropologists and they, they are asked, what does play look like? Or what does childhood look like in nature? And they ask three independent tribes um, three separate geographic locations, all children, um, when the anthropologists who asked, how are the children? Oh, they're um, amazing examples. Um, they're, they're playing, acting out what it is to be adult to start with, you know, playing with fire, building shelter, but also playing at what it is to be the plants, the rocks, the animals within that environment. Mm different to playing at being um the coffee sipping adult or the one on their mobile phone you know and then we say well you shouldn't be on your mobile phone but you're on your mobile phone mm. and the kids are playing out being on our mobile yeah. phones again it's the act so the kids are firstly just they're playing out what it is to be adult but they play from infancy through to adulthood right as in teenage years so infancy through to teenage years and so if that's the case and they walk straight into adulthood, then surely the play state is just adulthood. And the play state I refer to as like flow state. So mm. we're immersed in courses right now of how to reach flow state and how to get flow state to be able to work. But really that's like rewilding your play state or rechilding as I call it. Oh. It's getting it back to that playful state of mind. Mm. Play isn't really an act. It's a state of mind. That's the, that's, that's, that. that's the case. That's Peter Gray's work. So Peter Gray is, um, wrote a book called Free to Learn. So as a parent, another great book for you guys. Free, Free to, to Learn. learn. Make a note. Free to Learn. Free yeah. to Learn. Flow state, would you, just for our listeners, would you define flow state as, as a definition where the challenge that is facing you meets your ability head on? And then because they're, they com they're complement each other, you can actually thrive and just be in the moment. Yeah, you could liken it to even the absorbent mind, which was then Maria Montessori's work. So Maria Montessori had this absorbent mind that kids, again, if we look at children as the template, um, are really absorbent to something. It could be, oh, I'm fascinated. This jar's amazing right mm -hmm. now. I'm going to learn everything I need to know about this jar because I'm really just into the jar, right? <laughs> but the moment that I'm done with the jar, I don't, I don't need to learn anything about this right anymore. I could be onto the pen now, right? I'm really absorbed by the pen. Um, and then it could be within an act. It's like, oh, I'm really into running right now. Oh, wow, fast, fast. It's amazing play state, flow, flow state while I'm running. I'm working, refining all my breath work while I'm running. Oh, I'm really flowing now. And then just off in like what would be a almost like a meditative state within the practice mm. versus um, there's an environment that we all went through, right? And a lot of that uh, flow state and practices were taken away within that environment. I call it the school right so we go into a school and we sit in an environment and um holly at the moment so i'm really interested in the jar but you're not right mm -hmm. okay so i'll go um okay so i i i love everything about this jar it's amazing and and the other people in the class are like oh do we really have to learn about the jar today mm. I'm not really into the jar i don't want to learn about the jar and yet we're being forced to learn about the jar, but there's me in the class and I'm loving the jar. So I get it a hundred percent, but there might be someone sitting next to me who's like, I just don't get the jar. How comes he's getting the jar? What's wrong with me? Why don't I get the jar? <laughs> so immediately that's challenging 
So my receptors around what the jar is is completely changed to the person next to me. And that could be any subject. It could be um, running, for instance, right? So I have people that I coach and um, on big retreats or this. Um, I hold something called the 100 Human Experience. Yeah. And we have play there and it's very playful. And I have people that, oh, I don't like running or I've, I've never I haven't, I've never run, just don't, don't really like running. Mm. And, and I go, tag, and I'll tag them. And, then they're <laughs> running. and suddenly they're running, but, oh, yeah, but I, didn't, I don't like running. I haven't run for years, mm. just have no attraction to running. But where can that happen? Well, it can happen again in a, in a PE lesson, for instance. You might have gone into a PE lesson, and before that you were very playful. You were like the kids in the tribes playing out and acting, being everything. Or playing on the playground, because that's a playground, isn't it? That's where we play. And then you get to a certain age and the playground is no longer a playground. You go and have lunch instead and your play turns into PE, which is right now a serious subject, mm. but specialized as well. And rather than running around playing tag and running around on the playground and climbing things and jumping over things, although adult-led, that still is adult-supervised. It's still a form of play. Um, that play now turns into competition running around a track for time and there's different age groups within a, a schooling system within the year right so within that year you'll have kids that are slightly older and you have the youngest ones in the year who's going to be the strongest most competent mm. the ones that are slightly more developed right so then the younger ones in that class come away and think, well, oh, I'm no good at running mm. or I'm no good at this or I'm not strong at this or I can't climb the rope. That one can climb the rope. So then PE becomes this big thing where they have to get specialist clothes on and go and attend it yeah. and maybe come out feeling incompetent or inadequate, you know. And then you have to later on try and figure out how to dismantle and deconstruct that to find your flow state that should just be happening over here, which is the playground versus the PE session. Mm, that's a nice perspective you know, that's the way I interpret it so where does one begin you know we're so um, engorsed in society as it is with mobile phones and technology and social media how do you even begin to take those steps back to rewilding what's a good place to start where did you start um, I started with movement really um, and 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 then later on through coaching and having a business and the business going belly up right suddenly it was beyond movement for me it wasn't enough to move well or have this physique that was like on the cover of men's health magazine mm -hmm. it was like my internal world was smashed right so i was trying to support a business um a gym at that time holding like 16 hours a day of coaching and then coaching other coaches and holding workshops and then just uh a train oh it was in a disused railway building and a train blasted past one day and it just shook the building shook me and in a very short window of time we closed the business and then it was bankrupt and everything else so through that i had to kind of rebuild tony and and that was a lot of that work was the internal world i knew i i, I knew it i had the knowledge i just wasn't living it mm. because i've got i i was lost in this template of trait trait chasing success i would call it and what is success? Again, it's if the modern interpretation of success didn't match up to what I understand success to be now, which mm -hmm. is Tony reaching human potential or thriving within everyday environments or how to get my needs met in everyday environments. Because again, we can't demonize the 
the human zoo that we live in you know it's that's how it's set up how it's organized but it doesn't mean i can't get my needs met in those everyday environments so it started me understanding that what are those needs and so movement is a fundamental need and then i understood that play ah that's a fundamental need because if it wasn't a need why would it be here you know if you understand evolution we knock things off that aren't necessary that don't serve a purpose mm. and every mammal plays you know and some to such risky experiments of play where they're mounting goats on these huge rocks mountains and just <laughs> dancing around and playing up there you know at risk of death you know? and i'm sure some do die so if play wasn't important why would they be doing that you know and it's the same for us so play became a fundamental need for me sleep and my sleep was really compromised having a gym so sleep was one of the ones that i really started to understand i guess refine i would call that really for me i knew it oh we the, the story is we need eight hours a day right we need eight hours at night but then well okay the refinement and rewilding of that is it really because if we're all asleep for eight hours in nature through evolution and if we look to tribes of today no one's asleep for eight hours so why do we need eight hours because if we're all asleep for eight hours we wouldn't be here today because they were quite hostile environments with predators right so if your whole tribe's asleep for eight hours, I mean, we'd, we wouldn't be here, right? We'd have been wiped out, I guess. So um, how does that look? So then understand sleep, ah, people in nature, three independent tribes, ah, different geographic locations. No one's sleeping for eight hours. What are they doing? Oh, they sleep between 5.7 and 7.1 hours. They sleep wake through the night. Oh, there's a wake and a sleep cycle. Okay. And the, and 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 they're only ever asleep there's a study with the hadza and the hadza are studied and they're like they they've lived the same for 10 tens of thousands of years right it hasn't changed and they look at 33 members of that tribe and for 220 hours they're only ever asleep all of them at one time for 18 minutes so again there's sleep so it's like what's different okay so let's rewild the sleep environment the bedroom okay what would the bedroom look like in nature or strip away the walls and everything else. The, the temperature goes down at night. The lighting changes. Okay, what happens with the lighting? Well, there's biological darkness, starlight, moonlight, firelight, rather than ding, ding sunrise at sunset. So then we understand there's, well, there's hormones at play with that. So I then went to sleep and sleep, then suddenly found that incredibly nourishing for me. Um, and then what is, okay, air quality. So then we could go from air quality, cleaning up the air in your home or your everyday environments, but also how we breathe. So breathing patterns came in for me. And then through breathing, I started to get more involved in my internal world. And then I found things like meditation and breath and, and using breath, not just for the way that I breathe, but also to find altered states, you know, and to change my perception of my daily um, malaise, even at that stage, you know what were the things that were triggering tony and i could access them through breath you know so breath was amazing mm. food then what did food look like what does food look like in nature versus the human zoo and how can i make that experience more organic and then it became that it was very much well how do i make my consumption or my experiences more organic because the way i saw it is the inorganic consumptions of what tony was doing over here was leading to inorganic behaviors and being mm -hmm. which meant i was boozing doing drugs doing all kinds of things that i could do to support what i thought was my 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 um success you know 
And then I realized, ah, okay, the more organic consumption was enabling my behavior and my being to be more successful. On the on the sleep topic, uh, so we, you, talk, you talked about the tribe, the tribes there, the various tribes in the different locations and their sleep patterns. I was just because I'm I'm big on sleep, and I guess one of the uh, one of the considerations that if you don't sleep enough, the idea of how that affects the brain and recovery, which might not have then a short term manifestation, but then is more likely to lead to like dementia, particularly. And I don't know with these tribes like what life expectancy is, and I guess what we're then considering is do we want to live a good life in the short term for less years or do we want to extend our life and make sure in our 80s we don't have dementia and actually that's a, and a comedian talked about this this idea that you know people say oh do this and it will add an extra year to your life i think it was ricky gervais and it's like ricky gervais like, have you ever seen an 85 year old i don't want that year i'd rather <laughs> have a good time with a 21 year old not that extra year so with an 86 year old in a chair <laughs> yeah. in a care home <laughs> I think from the studies anyway, well, in the independent studies of these three tribes, um, they picked up on the um, one particular tribe, this is Bolivia, so they're on the cusp of being um, agricultural, um, horticultural, agricultural hunter-gatherers, right? Which is, I, I would say, where we were probably at before farming really just... Um, meant that we were monocropping and surviving on the same crops and animal products, right? Mm. Um, so there would be still foraging in there and they'd still be moving through a landscape. So first of all, if we understand brain development, it, it involves neuroplasticity, right? And neuroplasticity isn't just for kids. It's just that we start to become sensory deprived as adults. So we move from one linear box to another linear box. And we wear rubberized footwear that cuts off even more senses and we wear glasses and we wear headphones and we're plugged in constantly so we're touching linear surfaces with our hands we don't really receive so much new information whereas if you move through a landscape barefoot you're not only getting a microbiome hit like the kids in finland on the playground but you have 200,000 receptors in your feet the same as you do in your hands and you're moving over uh, even a lawn, if you walk across the grass right now, it won't be the same grass walking back again. You'll have a new experience, right? You never step in the same river twice, right? It's always this new experience, always a new opportunity to rewire your brain. That's neuroplasticity. So think about the organic experience versus the linear experience, even that, right? That's a way of looking at brain disease, right? Um, and constantly rewiring the brain. But then there's neuroplasticity and the neuromuscular, right? So there's this the physical adaptations versus the brain adaptation, right? Um, then we could go to neurotoxins, right? So if I um, am in the same room for eight hours sleeping, and I'm sleeping for eight hours in a room that um, has mastics, glues, paints, inorganic fibers, um, formaldehyde, benzene, xylene, all the things that are in the modern day bedroom, right? Through um, soft furnishings or paints or mastics right and i'm inhaling that same experience for eight hours okay versus 5.7 to 7.1 hours in an organic environment who would be more prone to neurological diseases mm. so i would look at it that way this is an organic experience it's an inorganic experience nice. so it's not the number of hours because we might be needing eight hours just for the fact we're sleeping and inhaling an inorganic experience right 
and we still wake up groggy and we mm. still feel that we need to caffeinate our bodies to get going in the morning. So there's hide, something hide really, hide the there's something out here, isn't there? <laughs> because if we're not waking up thriving and we look at these independent studies again of these tribes and that horticulture is agricultural on the cusp of hunter-gatherer, they're living to 70 to 80, but they're living because they're still yeah. able to move through a landscape, forage through the landscape, farm the landscape, and live out their life. It's very different to um, becoming sensory deprived, being divorced from movement, having to support yourself through other means. You know, that's that's a different lifestyle. And again, not demonizing that, but just understanding that, because we often say, yeah, but people in nature only live till 40. Actually, it's not true. They're living till 70, 80, but it's more hostile. They're not getting wiped out by um, 100 different autoimmune diseases or um, our number one killers, right? Like for men under the age of 50, mm. you know, mm. or um, having huge waves of depression or depression being the number one leading cause to um, time off work. Or, you know, it's just it's just looking at, at the sensitivities of it, I guess, and, it's, and it's, changing it's... that perception of the environment. It's not just eight hours sleep. It's what what is the environment that I'm looking to go to sleep mm. in mm. and what is the outcome? That's so interesting. And a lot of the information we're being um, told around sleep is most of those are laboratory studies. So we get to this, well, if we don't receive eight hours sleep, then we have this outcome. Yeah. And some of those outcomes we're led to believe it's um, inflammatory disease, right? Um, obesity. And yet if we look at, the melatonin cycle or melatonin itself, which comes in through having an organic sleep environment with organic light experience, which we call biological darkness, then melatonin is like a super hormone, right? In that sense, because it has antioxidant properties, anti-inflammatory properties, anti-cancer properties, and it controls the three main regulatory systems, your digestive system, right? Satiating hunger, right? Insulin, all of that is governed by melatonin, right? So it's not the hours of sleep, it's the environment of sleep because mm. melatonin is controlled by temperature and lighting, right? Mm. And then neurological diseases, well, what am I inhaling from that environment? And then when I'm out of that environment, how do I then interact with other environments that aren't linear and flat? How many senses am I experiencing through? How many of those senses, not just talking eyes, nose, ears, mouth, what about skin, right? Your spiritual skin, what is it you're absorbing and what are those experiences you're absorbing? What do you do in your physical environment, in your home, to make it then as kind of as natural and or, as organic as possible? Yeah. You got clay paint on the wall? Yeah, I would go with bedrooms first. I'd go that, work, go, that, go that route is to think, well, firstly, where do I spend the most time? Eight hours, bedroom, right? So that's a third of your life. It's the one part in the book that I would say costs the money because the rest of it's all it's all internal. We have all these amazing guns for free, all that stuff, the breath and the movement and the play and and that ability to reach happy hormones through that. But the bedroom is the stuff that I would say bit over bit over bit over bit part just change just change the environment. And this could be independent independent specific as to how you do this financially. For some it might mean, do you know what, a pillowcase at this stage. A plant let's bring a plant in you know and some studies suggest well nasa studies there's a list of 10 um 
air purifying plants, but it's the number of plants you'd really need to clean up the mm. environment. So I would go um, birthdays, Christmas in that case, family chip together, get you an air purifier, Dyson air purifier, put it in the corner of the room. That will clean up 99.9% of air impurities in that space, right? Then plants, plants help you see something more natural within that environment. So that enhances what? Well, that helps when we see nature, we have a lowering of heart rate, blood pressure. That will help. Air quality is better. Okay, so breathing, I can work on breath with that environment. So long inhales up through the nose, out through the nose. Nasal breath helps with its antifungal, anti um, bacterial through nitric oxide, also vasodilation and bronchial dilation. So it means I'm much more efficient at absorbing oxygen through the lungs, but also lowering of heart rate, blood pressure. Um, bedding, how can I make that more organic? Okay, look for organic mattresses, look for organic quilts, duvets, sheets. Then paints, yeah, work on paints. But if you don't have the time or energy, an air purifier. If you do have the time and energy, definitely deal with the paints clay paints brilliant mm. you know and start to strip it out that way and just look at that environment and bring more nature in i think part of this understanding that well if we have this amazing experience when we go out and we have these studies to look at now because we all know it right we all know internally that we feel so much better when we're mm. out there but we also need the science right to back it up so we can bring all that in now there's so much fantastic studies around nature immersion we have it through forest bathing so if you have that bring maybe journal what your experience is when you're out there because it's individual specific as to what makes us feel alive right mm -hmm. when we're out mm -hmm. there so journal that experience what is it is it the forest is it the smell of the forest is it the scene is it mm -hmm. something in particular is it water scenes and bring more of that in bring that more of into your everyday environment Shout out on a filter. We got. We just bought a little air. We got a few air filters. Is that the one behind us. But we bought one. You can kind of see it behind. Us. <laughs> oh my god! Right, nearly <laughs> went. Fell off the chair. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. Right. So it's it's called a breath filter, and it's got like yeah, a big brilliant. layer of moss. <laughs> then, nice. Then an organic filter, and it's won like Red Dot Design Awards, etc. But it's wonderful. It's, there you go. It's, it works really, really well. And it looks good. And far better than the big industrial one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and get them in your bedroom, yeah. right? That's the Because again, that's the environment. Yeah. That's I, where you're in there. I just almost fell off a chair. You don't do chairs. You you don't have that risk. What do you no, mean? I'm oh, you're on the we floor. We don't have any chairs in our home. Really? And is that for your posture or because you want to be closer to the earth? Um, Over time, it's it started out as posture because yeah. I used to have a big Pilates practice yeah. and most people used to come with the same ailments. It was like lower backs, neck, um, knee problems. And then firstly, I started at the footwear level and went into barefoot footwear, which sounds like an oxymoron barefoot footwear, but barefoot <laughs> technology. So it's footwear that's shaped like a foot mm. rather than for aesthetic reasons. We have a narrow shoe with a wide heel. Your foot is a wide toe box and a narrow heel, you know, so if you were to get your foot, place it on a piece of paper and you draw around it, you'll find that the toe area is wider than the heel. But if you grab most of your footwear, you'll find it's more narrow in the toe than yeah. the heel. So there would be, uh, that would impact the behavior of the foot. So you'd have the inorganic, organic experience again. It would be an inorganic behavior and being. Um, so there's 26 bones, 33 articulations, joint actions. Uh, 100 muscles, tendons, and ligaments within your feet and 200,000 receptors. So the, the footwear is quite important there to help nourish 
your locomotive patterns, the way you stand, um, the joint action of the ankle, the knee, the hip, and then your posture. So I started at that level. And then that then started to enable me to move in a way that was more efficient. And then through people that would come to see me in my Pilates practice, it was like, well, people would be taking their shoes off with the same rubberized heel and narrow toe box. I was like, oh my God, this is like nuts. What am I doing? You know, and we need to look at footwear. And then the next level was, well, where's the example of this? Well, nature again. Okay, what does it look like for indigenous cultures? Well, barefoot. Okay, what does it look for persistent hunters who are running barefoot? Okay, there's a specific posture and we started to see there's a posture involved with running and moving. And there's also a, a vocabulary of movement that's there, right? Um, running, jumping, lifting, carrying, throwing, defending, foraging, right? All these amazing acts. And how is it that people in indigenous cultures have these amazing postures, right? And so then it was the chair. Okay, the chair, okay, there's no chair in nature. Well, how do people sit in nature? Oh, there's, there's a number of rest positions that are on the ground. Where could we see them? Well, you'll see them as you bring a baby into the world and the baby starts to interact with gravity and their body weight on the ground, right? Because gravity becomes tangible through body weight and they start to move in particular ways and that's called motor skill milestones. And those motor skill milestones, suddenly you'll find the child is upright and then they'll be kneeling and they're kneeling into different positions. And then suddenly they get to squat. And then from their squat, they learn how to stand up because they once you get your weight on the basic, on the soles of your feet and you organize all your segments, you just have to have this huge weight being your head and have it above that base of support. So you started to see that. And then being a papa then to two young daughters, it was like, I have this knowledge. I have a Pilates practice. I'm advising people on posture and I'm starting to see that the cause is the footwear in the chair. And I'm offering symptom relief in my practice for lower backs, knees. And really it might put me out of business, but I need to tell people to stop wearing the footwear and to stop sitting and start interacting with the ground more and not demonizing the chair, but just in an unavoidable sitting situation, we have to sit, right? Buses, flights, offices sometimes right if you if you don't have permission from your hr department to have a standing desk um and then in the home we can have kind of more responsibility so in our home it's like right i was on youtube soaring up the sofa you know putting a video out there that we're soaring up the sofa because it's terrible for posture and um and then that meant then dining chairs went and trip track chairs that we used to put the kids in and stuff like that and that, that all went and then um, we were carrying the kids in slings anyway. And so I started to observe then, well, there's a number of rest positions. It said up to a hundred different rest positions that can be observed in nature again. And each one of those, you could call it a prerequisite or a micro, um, of the macro of standing up because each one helps nourish the joint actions and behaviors and mobilizes as well as strengthens our biostructure, our form of what it is to stand up and be upright. So it's not enough to have a standing desk if um, you're compromised in your ankle, your knee, your hip, or your head position, because mm. it's just as detrimental to stand with poor posture as it would be to yeah. sit. So for me, it was to take people back and get them interacting with the ground. So at home, yeah, we, we ground sit. And it's been, it's, I think within understanding Bo and Tallulah, because they were really exposed to it, is how quickly they interacted with the environment and became very tall and strong and upright mm. at a very early age and were very capable. So 
in terms of motor skill milestones, Tallulah was climbing at a really ridiculously young age, like in Ibiza over the rocks, like just, wow, wow look at her go. <laughs> and, and the same for Bo, just developed very, very early in their capacity to move well. And I think that's part of that conversation earlier. It's this becoming divorced from. And I think when we sit for 10 and a half hours a day, we become divorced from this amazing capacity to move. Mm. And it's very evident in teenage years because we go from moving a lot as a, as a young one, even though sitting, to maybe having to sit more. But yet we're growing at such a rapid rate and you have to learn how to operate these huge levers as you're growing. But if you're divorced from movement for 10 and a half hours a day, they become quite extreme. Whereas if you're always interacting with this physicality, those what we perceive as extremes of growth are on a micro level. So you'll always have this understanding of how to move your limbs, your levers, your capacity to move, you know. Can you tell us about your book? Yeah. What do you want to know about the book? Huh? It's all in there. Well, give us uh, a plug because it's it's available to buy now. And yeah, just would love, love to hear about it and what's, what's in yeah, it, what we so can it's expect. It's called Be More Human, How to Transform Your Lifestyle for Optimum Health, Happiness and Vitality. Um, it's available in all bookstores, um, all platforms. Um, we published on the 26th of May. It's been quite something. It's been a project that's been from someone planting the original seeds was like six years ago, I guess to where it's at now big pauses in amongst that like mm-hmm. two years pauses of right not doing it now i'm doing it no i'm not doing it and then finally found found um penguin life as a publisher that were um, really open to the work and allowing it to form um so there's a part on philosophy within that and that's the rewilding philosophy or my interpretation of that tribes of influence how we're um how we inherit templates from our tribes, our own tribes, by that I mean friends, family, communities. And then um, around spiritual practices as well, breathing, being, movement, play, sleep, rest, eating, drinking, and then indoor and outdoor living. So everything we've discussed is really opened up in the book, really, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I've got it on Kindle. I haven't read into it yet, but I've bought it on Kindle. It's raring to go. My priority is... How to be a dad first. I, I guess say... this might inform how to be a dad. <laughs> oh certainly. man, there's so much in there. It's uh, yeah. so much in there because I've, it's coming from a papa yeah, um, perspective as well. Mm. So um, and a, and a pe- just a parenting perspective within that book. It's in there, especially around the tribes of influence and understanding that it's in those early years. Our first seven years of life, we're literally recording everything we yeah. need for our adult life. Yeah. So trying as a as a parent tuning into how do I make those first seven years as organic as I can yeah it's quite something just before we move on some quick fire questions it just I was reflecting the other day and we are in a slight bubble to some degree in that you know we are all loosely in kind of fitnessy movement and lots of our listeners will be in some way into fitness movement yoga kind of lifestyle and I was walking around London yesterday, going from place to place that I do. And I started to realize, actually, for a lot of people, they are in one building for eight or nine hours a day. And then I you know, realized how lucky I was. You know, I was moaning a little bit because I'm constantly on the tube or walking or cycling somewhere. And I thought, actually, just imagine being in one building 
for eight hours, then going on the tube and then being on an, in another building for another 12 hours or like being relatively static for that whole time beyond maybe a quick gym session once or twice a week. Mm. I think we are, we are in a little bit of a bubble and I think it is important for us to... Uh, Read Tony's to, book. Yeah, well, yeah, and actually really <laughs> imagine, imagine what other people's lives are, you know, what they're doing with those lives. Yeah. But let's come to come quick fire questions now. You start. I would love to know if if you have a guilty pleasure, you know, like a bad habit that you just don't want to break or can't break. <laughs> um, I it used to be it used to be salt and vinegar crisps. Oh, <laughs> it used to be. I, I it was the last thing to go. That I my addictions really interesting. It was kind of salt and vinegar crisps. Any particular brand? Are we talking like high-end kettle crisps or kind of like walkers? Yeah, like ke- kettle, like through the roof. <laughs> Got to go I, kettle. I, it, really, it really started to come into play on one of the endurance events I did a couple of years back. And I ran barefoot from Land's End to John O'Groats. And like, you're really broken at that stage. And I was kind of the, the, the oh my God, I really need, I can just, I go in the supermarket, I should have smelled them. I should have come these salt and vinegar crisps, right? Um, and then just started to feel a bit smashed from eating them while I was out on these events. And it was like, okay, I, I realise now it's, that's why I'm off it. And it was really just uh, then at that stage seeing that it was um, a pacifier. Yeah. You know, it wasn't really a need. It was yeah. a want. Mm. Yeah. And, and so that that started to work its way out. And then I guess we do a mo- we do a movie a couple of days a week with the kids. Oh, that's nice you though. Yeah. What, was, what was the movie like this week? Um, what have they watched? They wanted uh, Mary Poppins on, like a new Mary Poppins. Oh, we have not watched that, actually, the you new know. one. Yeah, on the list. We have. Not the yeah, new yeah. one, have we? Yes, we have. I love it. that you remember it and I don't, <laughs> lol. <laughs> For me. And then Saluna and Bowman are a bit longer, younger, so they wanted Peter Rabbit. So oh, was sweet. That was when was, a, was there a particular moment when you realised you could make this a career? So I know you know you did Pilates, you owned a gym, but you could make this expertise a career in itself. I think I just stopped trying to make it a career. And <laughs> yeah. Made yeah, it a advice. being. And yeah. it kind of came in with this understanding of, well, if I, if, I, if I feel like this, how are others feeling, right? If I had to go for a breakdown, how are others feeling? And not really seeing, I don't think as a career, just seeing it as a, a being of service in yeah, a way, that nice. kind of understanding that, well, how do, we, how do we get this message out there, you know? And, and then stuff opened up because mm. I think it just came from a good place of intention. So it just mm. grew from there rather yeah. than, I think, how do we cash in on this? Yeah, yeah, totally. You know? And for our listeners, if, if someone's listening, thinking, okay, where can I start? Just one, one practice that can get me on the route to rewilding and coming back to my true nature. Where would you suggest that they start? Um, I would go to, can I go to? Go, go, go to, go to. Go wild. <laughs> go to I would go to this um just move move more you know and in your everyday environments sit less in chairs the study is like the hads are sit for 10 and a half hours a day you know they just don't sit like we sit for 10 and a half hours a day they're just a sedentary so it's not about the problem with being sedentary it's how we choose to sit so mm-hmm. in the book there's some great illustrations on sitting positions on the ground and that will just help mobilize and keep you strong so rather than becoming divorced from it, there's a great um, character in the book. His name's Yehudi. It's someone that I coach. He's now 81. Um, and there's, I, I, he first came to me at 72, wanting to learn how to walk. Right? Mm. 
um, stooped in posture. Since that, he's climbed Everest Base Camp, Bhutan, um, Atlas Mountains. He's just, I mean, incredible character. There's, I put his commute in, in the book as well, where he walks to the tube in barefoot technology, hangs off the bars on the tube, squats on the tube, surfs <laughs> on the tube, as in don't, doesn't hold anything. And that's all come from rewilding his kind of positions on the ground and getting him more familiar with the shapes that he can make. Then he doesn't need to go to yoga, you see. You, yeah. If you're working behind your screen for eight hours a day, you can get eight hours of mobility in there if you yeah. understand it that way. It's like... Yeah. Well, I don't need to find more time. It's all there. It's just becoming more opportunistic within that experience. Mm, Love that. Um, So that's ground sitting. Get to ground sitting. The other one is breathing Mm. because breathing, you can literally change your state. Um, And then it stops the hunting for the salt and vinegar crisps (laughs) as the pacifying want because you're more conscious. Yeah. So it's less upregulating. And the practice I often talk about is just this breathing on the hour. I call it a reboot. So you don't have to then have dedicated morning practice to sit and breathe for Mm. however long. You could just say, well, four seconds in, if you just relax your pelvic floor and your lower abdomen now, think about softening that area. That's the quickest way in. Oh, just relax the pelvic floor and the lower belly Mm. and try and guide your breath up through your nose, not in your nose. In your nose is like this. (laughs) Up your nose is... Mm. And you take a long inhale. And if you take a long enough inhale, it's probably around four seconds. And then extend your exhale so it's a little longer. So it'll be a... Yeah. What if I can't breathe out through my nose? There's no breathing police here. Just breathe out through your mouth Mm -hmm. if you're congested or whatever. But try and extend your exhale longer. And what we find is you put your finger on your pulse. When you breathe in, you'll get a slight pickup of your pulse. And when you exhale, you'll have a lowering of your pulse. Mm. So the exhale, the extended exhale is associated with being parasympathetic, yeah. which is your rest and digest, which is your calm state, your more conscious state. And it will stop the pacif- you need the need for pacifiers to yeah. come in, right? Yeah. Um, every hour, just do six cycles like that. Long inhale, long exhale. And six of those is just a minute. And everyone has a minute. Yeah. And it doesn't matter then where you're at in life if you're just going from one linear box to another linear box in a vehicle whatever it is having very little time outside you'll still be able to drop into a parasympathetic state if you can keep checking in with it because again it's it's not demonizing any environment it's how you can get your needs met within it and if we're upregulated, we often find that we reach for the coffee we reach for the snacks we reach for the cigarettes we reach for the booze and in my case, cocaine years ago, right? Mm. So it's just trying to find what it can be to keep you in a calm, collected state. And breath is brilliant for that. Mm. Movement and breath, like my go-tos. And then the trifecta would be get out in nature. Yeah. Nice. So there'd be three there. Move, breathe, we can, and chill out in we nature. We can all do that. We can and all do that. Is those there things. any quote or saying or motto you have for yourself that keeps you motivated or gives you a kick up the arse when you need it? Um, just this, I am an innately wild, connected, empowered being. I had um, 100 people at this experience. It's called 100 Human Experience. 100 people at the closing of it. And I had them yelling out, yelling out, I am, I am, I am. An innately wild, connected, empowered being. At the end of it, like 100 humans, <laughs> then they go again and again and again until you really feel it. So I practice, I have a lot of practices like that. Um, because again, if we strip it right back, that's what we are. Yeah. It's, that's rechilding for me. It's like rewilding, rechilding is to get it back to that understanding. There are innate superpowers, right? And 
as many as we can return back to the better because that enables us to reach our human potential and step into the table or sit at the table of interdependence at the level of where we should be so that we're not compromised and we don't compromise the environment at the same time. And very lastly, I think you actually have an event coming up in July. Is that right? Because I was looking at it thinking, can I get away with that being <laughs> nine months pregnant? Probably not. But um, that's what you're talking about now, right? Yeah, it's called the 100 Human Experience. Um, it's down in Devon. Yeah. It's over a long weekend. So it's the 15th, 16th, 17th of July. So it's in two weeks time there. Soon upon us. And so that involves um, play, breath work, ice baths cacao ceremonies, mm. voice awakening work, um, ecstatic dance, just, yeah, just incredible. Oh, and have a hundred people moving yeah. like that together. Is, and is like there space together. left on it? Quite something. Yeah. Can people um, There's it? a few spots, I believe. Mm. Yeah. We kind of hold, I hold back a number, um, leading up to it. We've got to yeah. go. One time we're going to that. That sounds absolutely amazing. I think this year, this year might be. Yeah. How, yeah, many, how, next year. Well, how many weeks are you now? Thirty-five on uh, Sunday. So wow. getting close. I know. Waddling around. Yeah. Oh, it's exciting. <laughs> so I might come yeah. to you for some um, some tips. I would go. There's another great book called Magical Child, which is Joseph Chilton Pierce. Okay, Magical Child. Magical, Magical Child. Child. Continuum concept. I've read Continuum um, concept. Yeah, it's brilliant. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, right. really good. But okay, Magical yeah. Child is on the list. Thank you so Magical much. Magical Child, because for everyone, I, I, regardless of whether you're a parent or not, it's just mind-blowing, you know? It really yeah. is mind-blowing. Awesome. Thank you, Tony. Thank you could, so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Honestly, I'm balanced.